This is Ottoman History Podcast, Matt Kazarian here. Next, we'll speak with Yonja Köksel about political reform in the late Ottoman Empire. In 1839, Sultan Abdulmajid I issued a proclamation that would transform the empire forever. It inaugurated the period known as the Tanzimat, or reorganization, that gave rise to the first Ottoman constitution in 1876. During this period, the Ottoman Empire transformed into something closer to the states we live under today. It obtained a larger bureaucracy, a centralized army, and saw attempts to apply uniform laws across the land. But the empire stretched across three continents and contained tens of millions of people with multiple religions, languages, and cultures. So how did they implement these reforms across the empire? We'll discuss new approaches to studying the Tanzimat that show how differing structures of social networks determined the different outcomes of government reforms. The social networks that connected, uh, you know, state actors with uh, other actors at the local level differed in Edirne and Ankara. We'll also talk about the impetus behind these reforms and how the government wanted to show that it could build a system to serve all Ottoman subjects. For the Tansimat state, it was very important to prove that the Ottomans were capable of ruling over non-Muslim communities. In closing, we'll look at how reforms in some areas brought the opposite effects. They were gaining their own distinct ethnic or, let's say, proto-nationalist identity. Makazarian here. This is Ottoman History Podcast. We're recording in Istanbul with Professor Yonja Köksel. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. So in this episode, we will look at what determined the outcomes of the Tanzimat reforms as they were implemented in different areas of the empire. And we'll address this question by drawing on Professor Köksel's recent book, The Ottoman Empire and the Tanzimat Era, uh, which is out from Rutledge in 2019. I wanted to start with a broader question for listeners who may not be so familiar with late Ottoman history. What is Tanzimat and why study it? Uh, what is so important about these few decades of government reform in the 19th century? Tanzimat, I think, is an important period in Ottoman history. The time period uh, was also important to understand a general transformation that was taking place in the Ottoman Empire, but also in the whole world context. Uh, 19th century is usually considered as transformation from empires to nation states. In this sense, I think Tanzimat is quite important. Uh, and in fact, in the literature, there are kind of two broad readings of Tanzimat. And uh, one of them emphasized Tanzimat as a top-down project, uh, this was a view that was quite popular in Ottoman studies until the last couple of decades, by the way. And in this reading, the idea was that the Ottoman statesmen were influenced by the European statesmen, and they adapted uh, these reforms without consulting to the local forces, to the social actors. And uh, because of that, Tanzimat became a failed project. 
in the last couple of decades, actually, we see a growing literature that challenge, criticize this viewpoint, and they emphasize more on the bottom-up uh, perspective, hmm. how different local actors, different uh, social groups, including local intermediaries, okay, hmm. you know, the merchants, tax farmers, let's say tribal leaders, how they responded to uh, the reforms, but uh, also lay people, right, the workers, for example, women, how the response of this you know, underrepresented communities mm. took place. The major contribution I try to do in this book is to, to introduce a new approach to the study of state and social group relations in the Ottoman Empire. Instead of talking about the relations between state and society as a zero-sum game, what I argue here is that you know we can talk about the interaction between state and social actors. In, in my understanding, we need to see it as a dance between two partners. Mm. So one of the partners would try to impose his or her you know, moves in the dance. The outcome of this dance depends on uh, the interaction between these two parties. Uh, this is what I try to do in this research, actually. So your work focuses on two provinces in the Ottoman Empire, so we get a sort of comparative perspective on what's going on, Edirne and Ankara. How did you come to decide that these would be the two, the two provinces for studying the Tanzimat? Okay, thank you. So what I wanted to do is to look at how the Ottomans manage reform in the core regions of the Ottoman Empire. Core regions meaning that uh, they were part of this Ottoman administrative system from the earlier period onwards. And close uh, to Istanbul too, right? They were cl uh, almost in the same proximity to Istanbul, but one of them was located in the, you know, in the European lands of the Ottoman Empire, and the other one was located in, in central Anatolia, Ankara, yes. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to look at core regions, but I also wanted to pay attention to this European versus Anatolian lands. And of course, when I look at Anatolia, to which province to choose, I could have picked Izmir, Smyrna. But then it would be very much like Edirne in terms of commercialization. So I was looking for a province that was kind of away from this global connections and economic developments. So I pick up Ankara. Mm. It didn't emerge as a good option because it was a former imperial capital and uh, there were lots of archival documents that I can use. Ankara also had lots of archival documentation that was available in the Ottoman archives. What exactly were the sources you used to pull out stories about these local social actors that helped determine the outcomes of Tanzimat in different areas? Uh, so in the Ottoman archives, there are various registers that you can uh, follow the stories of local intermediaries. They petition to the Ottoman state quite frequently. Mm. Uh, they send both individual petitions uh, and collective petitions. So, for example, one thing I did in this uh, book is to check the comparison of this collective petitioning in Edirne and Ankara. While in Edirne I was able to see collective petitions that were signed by both Muslims and non-Muslims. Mm. In, in the case of Ankara, separate petitioning based on this communal identification was much common. Uh, but for my quantitative social network analysis, what I did was to look at the Ayniyat defterleri. Hmm. 
okay. of Meshdisivala. Okay. Meshdisivala being. It's the Supreme Council, basically. Supreme Council at first was responsible for uh, both making the regulations for the Tansimat and handling case of complaints. Okay. okay. So especially in the earlier time period, until 1860s, you could uh, find both the regulations that were made in Meshdisivala and sent to the provinces, and the cases, complaints, and how they were processed in, in the Supreme Council, a, a case of complaints. Both of them uh, are available. And so your research was, was studying the sets of the petitions that are being sent by locals, either individuals or groups, mm-hmm. to this Supreme Council, the Meshdisivala. Yes. And mm-hmm. they would then review the case and, and give an opinion about it. Exactly. And Ainiyatefters are quite interesting in the suspect. Of course, I looked at the original petitions that were available in other catalogs like Irades, Mektubu Umumi, Kalemi, and any other kinds of catalogs. But Ainiyatefters are the summaries, very detailed summaries of this petitions and how they were responded by by Meshdisivala. So I have a standardized information. Right. right, because all of them were written in the same style, and uh, of course, you know, det- details were different for Edirne, for Ankara. You could see different cases of complaints, but the methods of writing were mm-hmm. quite standardized. There's a form to the data that you're looking at. There's exactly. A summary of the issue and our opinion, kind exactly. of thing, right? Okay, and this was very f- uh, helpful for me because I was doing quantitative social network analysis. Mm-hmm. I needed this type of standardized. Data. Therefore, for my quantitative analysis, I used the data set I created from this uh, uh, summaries that I found in, in the Ainiyat Defters. So I was actually planning to ask about this as well, um, how in your work you, you combine historical methods with sociological approaches. And part of this was, was pulling out quantitative data from these Ainiyat Defteris mm-hmm. and the sources mm-hmm. that you look at. What exactly is social network analysis? How does it work? Why did you decide to, to draw on these methods for your work on the Tanzimat? Mm-hmm. Basically, social network analysis is about uh, defining and explaining relations among different nodes, meaning actors, that were located in a network. Okay? And this is important because when, once you look at these relations among these uh, actors, you can understand different characteristics related to these interactions. And one thing you can get is the density of network, whether there, were, there are dense relations among social actors in a network or not, tells you something about the social structure, let's say local structure in my case. And you can also identify centrality Right. There so are who's like in the center of the network, well connected? Okay. Yes. And who's sort of floating out on the periphery? Exactly. Maybe the one or two connections. Or you can see central actors, but also actors who act like brokers, right? Or bridge that connect unconnected actors to each other. And that's important because when we think about this, you know, transform state transformation story, right? Uh, we talk about centralization, elimination of local intermediaries. Local intermediaries are actually brokers, right? They broker the relationship between the state and social actors located in a certain region. 
and this is called vertical uh, brokerage, by the way, right? Okay. Uh, and there's also something called horizontal brokerage, in which this local intermediary is also mediated relations between various local actors. So it's kind of within community mm. uh, brokerage. So vertical is like kind of connecting the state to local areas. Yes. And then horizontal is connecting a lot of different local actors together. Yes. Uh, and in the case of Indirna and Ankara, what I noticed is that local intermediaries uh, Notables, ayans, chorbajas, kocabashas, multesims, tribal leaders, right? Local intermediaries who were both vertical and horizontal brokers uh, were incorporated into this new administrative system. They were brought system. in. They weren't thrown out. They were, the, exactly. the Ottomans tried to bring them into the system as a way to kind of carry the reforms into local areas exactly. using their existing connections. Exactly. So these brokers became the means for state centralization, but it also had implications for the Ottoman state, right? Mm. Uh, the brokers benefited this, uh, from this positioning because they became council members, they became local administrators, uh, but at the same time, the Ottoman state had to give up some of its power, right? Because those people, when they entered into local councils, which were responsible for distributing taxes at the local level, of course, they used their own advantages, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so through their own alliances, they uh, accumulated wealth. Right. So you were studying the different relationships that you could mm -hmm. among all these different social actors who are mentioned in the petitions, you know, this merchant is allying with this other notable and sending a complaint about these other guys or whatever. And so you went through and you recorded all of these and then took that data and kind of compared what's going on in Edirne during the Tanzimat, what's going on in Ankara during the Tanzimat. So what social structures did you find? Okay, so same, I did it both uh, in terms of narrative analysis and quantitative analysis. Since we are talking about social network analysis, let me first complete this part. Mm -hmm. Social network analysis is very helpful because they give you a kind of a broad perspective mm. to see who was connected to whom, who was in the you know uh, central position, who was disconnected, and what type of you know map, right? What the kind of shape that we have from this local networks, but uh, social network analysis could be really problematic when they are applied to historical cases, right? Mm. Because in social network analysis, you need to have continuous data, okay? Over a long uh, time period. But once you work with archives, with all this historical documentation, you don't have this data, okay? Right. You don't have the continuous interaction. So you can grasp maps for certain limited time periods. Mm. Uh, so this is why I did block modeling analysis. I tried to get an overall map of the connections in both Edirne and Ankara, but then I divided into four different time periods because I didn't have the continuous data. So I took uh, slices of interaction and right. try to look at how it changed over time, especially in terms of the density of connections and centrality of local actors over time. And I also checked the most central actors over time mm. because uh, these people change over time. The change in these individuals were also important. For example, some uh, very strong local families who were very central in the earlier time periods in Ankara, like the Jabbarsade family, started to lose their significance towards 1870s. Right. So social network analysis are just good representations mm. uh, to get the broad picture, but I needed to uh, 
support them with the stories that right. I got from the archives because I was able to follow these major social actors that occupied crucial positions in both Edirne and Ankara networks over time. Right. So I supported my quantitative analysis with qualitative analysis of the historical documents that I have. So you did both. You had this going through and counting and measuring the best you could mm-hmm. and using block modeling, which mm-hmm. is this method of just taking slices for periods of time. And that gave you sort of an overall view. Exactly. Yeah. But then you went in and then you said, okay, there are some people who are really sticking out here as either mm-hmm. being very central or having lots of dense relations mm-hmm. with many others. And so you, you kind of used it almost as a guide and said, let me zoom in on these characters and I'll go and read them myself. Yes. See mm-hmm. what's going on. Yes, exactly. Uh, so what what did I find, right? This is the yeah, question. Yeah, so between Adirne and Ankara. Okay, uh, but let me first, different? I mean, the local structures were different and my argument is that this different in this local structures that's the social networks that connected uh, you know, state actors with uh, other actors at the local level differed in Edirne and Ankara, and this difference had implications for, for the reform application, okay? Uh, but this wasn't the only factor that was effective to understand the uh, reform p- period in both provinces. In fact, there were some important differences between these two provinces at the beginning of the Tanzimat reforms. Both of them were located in the core regions of the Ottoman Empire, as I mentioned to you. Uh, both Edirne and Ankara were directly subject to the first uh, reform policies, and that's, I think, crucial to understand how the state and these different social actors mm-hmm. interacted with each other. So in terms of economy, in Edirne, I'm talking about quite a developed commercialized economy. There was both commercial agriculture and well-established trade connections. You know, Edirne was not a port city per se, but it had an access to the Tekirda port, Rodosto, right? An important port in the region. Uh, it was a, a Plovdiv, a major center for Bulgarian revival, okay? A, a major trade center was also located in the city of Edirne. So, so there we are talking about a province that was well connected to, to the trade networks of Europe. In Ankara, however, we are talking about limited economic development. Ankara used to be a major textile center uh, because of this mohair, right. tiftik, okay? Famous Ankara goats, The right? famous Ankara goats and the wool, uh, right? Uh, but starting with the 17th century, this textile production decreased significantly. When we came to the 19th century, there was limited textile production. Compared to Edirne, it was economically less developed. So Edirne was more of a rising economic star, whereas Ankara had had more trade in the past, but then by the 19th century, yeah, by the 19th century, it was not doing as well Mm -hmm. as it had been. Exactly. The ethnic composition, the demographic composition was also different. You know, Ankara was located in central Anatolia in a very secure location for the Ottoman state. And uh, around 80% of population were Muslims, so there were Muslim majority. But in the cities, cities of Ankara, Kayseri, there were considerable uh, groups of Armenians, Greeks, uh, and uh, and in some cases Jewish communities. So both cities were multi-ethnic, multi-religious, but Muslim majority was dominant in Ankara. Okay? Right. Uh, meaning that for the Ottoman state, especially during the Tanzimat era, in, in the age of all of these rising nationalisms, Ankara did not really repre- 
represent a big challenge with the Muslim majority and secure uh, central Anatolian location. Whereas Edirne, of course, had a non-Muslim majority, around 50 to 60 percent of population were non-Muslims. Mm -hmm. There was great diversity. There were Bulgarians, Greeks, Armenians, Jews, uh, you know, Muslims, so, you know, Turks, uh, but also other, you know, uh, Muslim groups living in the province. So, we, mm -hmm. uh, so, and in fact, for the Tansimat state, it was very important to prove that the Ottomans were capable of ruling over non-Muslim communities, right? Mm -hmm. This whole Ottoman citizenship project, equal rights. So, th so therefore, because of this, you know, ethnic composition and also the differences in geopolitical location, the Ottomans invested more in the province of Edirne. Edirne, by the way, was the former imperial capital. Right. It was the starting point of any kind of the military campaigns to Europe. Uh, so Edirne was symbolically very important. Uh, because of all these factors, the Ottomans had more integrationist policies in Edirne, meaning that they were not only concerned with taxation and military conscription, but they invested a lot in socio-economic development of the province. They were concerned about gaining the approval of non-Muslim majority who lived in Trying the really to integrate the province into its new project exactly. very wholeheartedly. Exactly. And then in Ankara... Ankara was in central Anatolia. They were already ruling it with this Muslim majority. So in Ankara, extraction, right, in terms of taxation, military conscription was more dominant compared to the integrationist policies in mm -hmm. Edirne. So these are the differences. And the local structures based on this, you know, differences in, you know, socioeconomic development, uh, geopolitical location, demographic composition uh, were also important. In Ankara, there was one strong family that was very influential in the whole province. Hmm. And this family was the Jabbarzade family, who were also known as the Chapanolus, Chapanolu okay. family. So this family, actually, Jabbarzades, were very influential since the 17th century. In fact, there are books, works uh, written on this topic a lot, okay? Um, you know, very recently Ali Aycoğlu's book, Partners of Empire, also talks about Jabbar Sades, Çapanoğlu's. So we are really talking about a major Ayan dynasty. In fact, hmm. uh, more than an influential local family, they are uh, like a dynasty that survived more than two centuries. So this family lived in the Bosok, district, they exercise influence over the whole province of Ankara. During the Tanzimat era, many members of the administrative council, the local council of the city of Ankara, came from Jabbarzade family. Similarly, the Bosok local council had many representatives from the Jabbarzade family. One of the members of Jabbarzade was appointed as the administrator who was responsible for sedentarization of tribes. Hmm. So they were located at the very central positions of the Ottoman administration. So there's in Ankara we have this extremely powerful local dynasty, really, the Jabbarzades. What about in Edirne? How does it compare? Mm -hmm. 
And in, in Ankara, by the way, let me complete that part, there were also smaller families who were um, kind of strong in their own localities. Uh, an example was the Zen Necizade family in Kayseri. Uh, they were influential in the state of Kayseri, but whenever they had some issues, they were dependent on the mediation of the Jabbarzade family. Mm -hmm. So we are really talking about a local structure in which a local dynasty overall controlled both vertical and horizontal brokerage. And in the smaller cities, urban centers, uh, there were, uh, you know, local families who brokered uh, community relations, okay, mm -hmm. at the local mm -hmm. level. This was a, a, a kind of a disconnected structure in which the local intermediaries, the dynasty, right, Jabbarzade family, was very powerful. Right. Uh, so the Ottoman state, when it was centralizing, it was dependent on the cooperation of the Jabbarzade family. In Edirne, however, there were no such dynasty. The legacies of the reforms of Mahmud II uh, was very visible in the city of Edirne. The powerful Ayans who lived in the Balkan lands of the Ottoman Empire were eliminated. Mm -hmm. There was Dadevranzade family in the city of Edirne, which was a very strong Ayan, but he was killed, right, during Mahmoud II's centralizing reforms. So what was left was that there were many middle-range local intermediaries. There were local Ayans, of course, in, in many parts of Edirne. In fact, in the city of Edirne, there was a clique of Ayans. But these groups of Ayans didn't have the power of uh, the Jabbarzade family. They were plural intermediaries. And many of them were tax farmers, okay? They, so they had some kind of state connection. But at the same time, um, many of these intermediaries were also connected to the European trade. To the, they were connected to European merchants. Uh, we could see in the archival documents that they borrowed money heavily from uh, Russian merchants, from the British merchants, so they had all the straight connections well established. So mm. they had another option, right? Whereas in the case of Jabbarzade family, both state and Jabbarzades needed each other. Each other, because right? it was more self-contained in Ankara. Exactly, there were one no strong family connection. And less international, got it. Whereas in Edirne, it's more... They're plural intermediaries, and they also have the option of forging more connections with outside groups, whether outside governments or mm -hmm. outside commercial connections or whatever. Yes. Uh, since there were so many intermediaries in Edirne, there was high competition among them, both for state favors and also for international connections with European merchants. So what uh, I saw in Edirne was the formation of coalitions among these groups of local intermediaries. For example, multisims, tax farmers, got together and formed a company. Mm. Uh, to get the tax collection rights from the state. Once they got these tax connections, they sublease it mm. uh, to other uh, smaller uh, local intermediaries in different uh, parts of the province. Or they form trade companies uh, to trade their rice or cotton that were produced in the region uh, to European merchants. So in order to survive in this competition, they needed to form these coalitions. And these coalitions, very interestingly, surpass. Uh, ethnic or religious boundaries. So Muslim tax farmers formed tax farming companies uh, with non-Muslim tax farmers. They uh, work together, merchants work together. Uh, I call these coalitions as bubble coalitions, by the way. Why? Bubble coalitions because they were 
very fragile. Okay, mm. they were not durable. They were formed for the issues at stake. Uh, to get, for example, tax farming privileges from the state, they got together, they formed it. But they were fragile because there was competition among these local intermediaries. Um, uh, so they could pop or collapse at any exactly, moment. Got exactly, exactly. Uh, so in internet, there was a very interesting situation. On one hand, there's this capacity to form coalitions that surpass religious and ethnic boundaries. And this is something very important. In fact, uh, when there were discussions about implementing some uh, socioeconomic development projects in Edirne, we have several examples that this uh, local intermediaries, this locally powerful and wealthy people, got together, formed coalitions. They uh, organized a donation campaign, for example, mm. to uh, build a hospital in the state of Edirne. They were able to get uh, together. There was the sense of urban good, right? Okay. People lived together. They needed new roads, transportation networks, telegraphs, uh, you know, transportation networks, okay? Uh, so for these needs, they were able to come together, organize campaigns, and participate to the development of their own provinces. That's uh, something crucial. But very interestingly, this common interest, right, in public good that cross over religious and ethnic boundaries were not represented in the realm of political ideologies or ideas, because in the same time period in the province of Edirne, we also see the rise of this, I don't want to call it nationalism, it's kind of an earlier phrase, perhaps proto-nationalist mm. uh, identities, right? Bulgarians, for example, became more aware of their Bulgarian identity. They started to, the, the leaders of Bulgarian community, for example, uh, started to invest education in Bulgarian, okay? Mm. They formed reading clubs, newspapers. Greeks did the same thing, okay? Mm -hmm. Muslims started to become aware of their own identities, their Turkishness for the first time. So we are talking about two simultaneous developments in the province that seem of almost Edirne. opposite in a way. At exactly. once there's these cross-confessional yes. coalitions, yes. Um, but then at the, at the same time there's this tension of people kind of self-forming into communities with mm -hmm. stricter boundaries in some. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure what I'm hearing is what, what you're saying, which is the the form of the social world in Ankara and Adirne shaped very different outcomes that for Tanzimat and Ankara mm -hmm. actually served to sort of empower one family that was already quite powerful and kind mm -hmm. of set its role uh, even more firmly in the Tanzimat process. These Jabbarzates were able to position themselves as key brokers mm -hmm. and kind of played a key role in kind of carrying out these Tanzimat reforms. Whereas in Adirne, there wasn't this one dominant family. There were many different families for historical reasons. The old mm -hmm. dominant families had been eliminated earlier. And so the result was at once coalitions that were cross-confessional based on uh, raising money for public mm -hmm. goods or getting particular tax farming rights or particular other rights. They were fragile coalitions, but they were forming on all sorts of levels. But then there were also these proto-nationalistic, as you say, undercurrents that were going on as well. Yes, yes. But uh, in Ankara, uh, Jabbar Sade family was the crucial actor. They were the key family in, you know, implementing Tansimat's reforms. But in the long run, 
They became part of the Ottoman state. That's the mm. crucial difference. They got assimilated into the state. They itself. were assimilated into the state because they became the bureaucrats, local administrators. They became the members of local councils. So from dynasty to bureaucrats, kind exactly, of over a number exactly. of generations. That was an important transformation, so that they became loyal to the Ottoman state. They were loyal anyway, but yet in this new uh, situation, uh, they became state officials completely. So. By the 1870s, the Bulgarian national movement is is really heating up, and uh, it's one of the main reasons that the Ottomans are brought into this war with the Russians, mm-hmm. the Russo-Ottoman War of 1877 to 1878, which results in an independent Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. Um, Adirne is right in this neighborhood uh, where all yeah. of this is going on. So was reform kind of nurturing these proto-nationalistic attitudes, or was reform also uh, creating a sort of Ottoman sense of pride and an Ottoman sort of citizenship that would kind of supplant these nationalistic tendencies? Like, What was going on here? I think it was going all together. I mean, on one hand, there's this Ottoman nation identity that was kind of applied as a discourse and adapted by these local intermediaries, but at the same time, uh, the development of these communities meant that they were gaining their own distinct ethnic or, let's say, proto-nationalist identity, okay? And this is most visible in the case of the Gümüşgerden family, one of the examples in my book. Gümüşgerden family, in fact, was a major family during the Tansimatira in Bulgaria, Nikolai Todorov calls uh, Gümüşgerdans as the first capitalist entrepreneurs in Bulgaria. Hmm. Uh, you know, they mediated the ABA trade, the cloth trade, between Istanbul and, you know, parts of Bulgaria. They were both connected to the Ottoman Empire, and they started to uh, trade clothes with uh, Europeans, textiles with the hmm. uh, European merchants. Uh, Gümüşgerdans became so much connected that the Austrian Empire gave a medal to Gümüşgerdan. The Ottomans did the same thing, by hmm. the way. So the Gümüşgerdan family had these medals given by both the Ottomans and the uh, Habsburgs, let's say. Uh, so... Uh, we are talking about a time period when identities were in flux. And in fact, there's this growing literature in Ottoman studies that there were all this, you know, multiple identities that people uh, utilize in their interactions. Really in the same family you see it, like this Gümüş Kadyan yeah, was I saying mean, on one Filo's work on Samos, right, it has the same argument, you know, the rulers of Samos were both loyal Ottoman subjects, they communicated with the Ottoman state, but on the other hand, they became symbols of Greek national identity. The same with the Gümüşgerdan family, depending on their interactions, they were shifting their identities. I, I don't call it as pragmatism, okay? Mm-hmm. This is something else, because 19th century is a time period when all these identities were in flux. Uh, what seems contradictory from contemporary perspective because we live in a world where national identities are so fixed and stagnant, right? Mm. Uh, It doesn't make sense for us, right? Right. Uh, But when we look back into this time period with its own dynamics, the national identities were in the stage of formation. It was a long process. So shifting between Ottoman imperial identity and Bulgarian identity was something kind of natural for these people. Mm. My my understanding at this is like that.
Professor Coxell, I want to thank you very much again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. So we've discussed key moments in the Ottoman reform process known as the Tanzimat between 1839 and 1876, focusing on the provinces of Adirne and Ankara, uh, drawing on Professor Coxell's recent book, The Ottoman Empire in the Tanzimat Era, which is out from Rutledge in 2019. For those of you who'd like to find out more, I encourage you to go pick up the book and uh, have a read for yourselves. We'll also have an annotated bibliography available on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find out about our latest episodes, stay up to date with news about the podcast, and join our community of over 30,000 listeners. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. <laughs>